Well, good morning. If, uh, if I have not met you, if you're new to Grace or uh, on live stream, my name is Chad Donahoe. I'm the interim pastor at Grace. And right now we are in a series on the minor prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. This morning we're in the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Jonah. And as you're turning, just want to remind you, I posted an article on our website under uh, worship resources. It's an article by a good friend of mine, Bob Thune. He's a pastor in Omaha. It's a helpful article on a little bit of background to the minor prophets, who they were, what their role was. Um, So there's some helpful information for you there to read up on if you so desire. Just a quick reminder of minor prophets before we dive into Jonah that... um, Minor prophets were a mouthpiece of the Lord. The Lord called these minor prophets to go speak to either God's people or the nations, the word of the Lord, and they were called to obey that. You could say the minor prophets, or at least the way that I think about the minor prophets, they were pointers. They often pointed back to the covenant that God had established with his people and called God's people to faithfulness. But at times, they pointed at the people, at their particular sin. could be idolatry or greed or you name it, hypocrisy. They would point at God's people and tell them they needed to repent or judgment was coming. And at times, they pointed to the hope of the future, the hope for those who are faithful to the Lord. So this morning, we have Jonah, who was a prophet to Israel, But God calls him specifically in the book of Jonah to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. So with that, let me pray for our our sermon this morning, and we'll dive in. And as my habit, I'll take one of Paul's prayers, and we'll make it our own. So this prayer is out of 2 Thessalonians. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this is our prayer, that you would create, uh, continue the work in our lives of making us worthy of the calling to glorify you, that we would bear your name to the world, that we would seek to glorify Christ. So help us this morning as we listen to your word read, as we listen to it preached. Pray that you would strengthen, convict us, encourage us where we need. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so Jonah, chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So it was really difficult just to read the first three verses because this is such a fascinating story. I was tempted to read the whole book, but as my normal habit, I will in one Sunday pretty much cover or at least touch on all four chapters of the book of Jonah. But I want to open up the book with this question. If somebody were to ask you, What is the book of Jonah about? What would you say? Rhetorical question. Think to yourselves. A couple seconds. Time's up. Did your thought include a fish by show of hands? Okay. And again, if somebody were to ask you, what is the book of Jonah about, but you cannot include a fish, what would you say? Hey, a big fish is definitely part of the story, but there is a whole lot more going on underneath the surface. And yeah, that was a pun, and I have a few more. 
Um, but it is actually true. This, um, let me just, let me summarize the book of Jonah, Jonah real quick, four chapters. So God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach to them. Jonah does not like this idea, so Jonah runs in the opposite direction, actually sails away into the distance in the opposite direction. At least he tries to, but God brings a huge storm upon the boat, and the sailors realize it's Jonah's fault, and they hurl him over, chapter 1. Chapter 2, he's swallowed by a big fish. He prays within the fish, or his prayer is recorded of his prayer in the fish, and the fish hurls him, otherwise known as vomited, out as well. Chapter 2. Chapter 3, God calls Jonah again to go back to the Ninevites. This time, Jonah does, and a revival breaks out in Nineveh. That's chapter 3. Chapter 4, Jonah celebrates. He is so excited. Oh no, I'm sorry, that's the book of Acts, where thousands come to the Lord, and they're excited. No, Jonah is angry. And he continues in his anger for the rest of the book, and the book ends. Any questions? Yes, there are a lot of questions within the book of Jonah, and here's a few that I have. My overarching questions. Why did God see fit to have the book of Jonah in our Bibles? What do we learn about God in Jonah that is incredibly important for our lives? And what is the heart of this book? Those are the overarching questions. I'll return to these at the very end of the sermon. But for right now, at the heart of this book is not merely a story about a man being swallowed by a fish. At the heart of this book is God's sovereign mercy. Or, if I could say it another way, it is about the compassionate heart of God that we see throughout all four chapters. This book shows us God's heart, shows us Jonah's heart, but then Jonah's heart is a mirror to our hearts. We are Jonah in so many ways as we see it played out in this book. We'll see Jonah exceedingly angry at the sovereign plan of God. Essentially, Jonah's saying, why? That's us at times when things don't seem to go the way that we want them to in the world. We'll see Jonah with a very cold and calloused heart towards others. That is us, too often at times. So why do we need this book? Like Jonah, we need to be reminded of the compassionate heart of God. We need to be reminded of God's sovereign mercy. Because the, the truth is this, God's heart is a compassionate heart, and he calls us to reflect that heart to the world. Before we dive deeper, it's another pun, um, there's some interesting features uh, in this book. It's almost all narrative, meaning story. This book almost acts like a parable of Jesus, where Jesus is telling the story, and then he gets to the end, and there's a jolt. Right? And we'll find, uh, we'll find that's true of the book of Jonah. Also, there's a lot of key words that are repeated throughout this book that drives the message of the book. And I'll pay attention or I'll call out attention to those repeated work, words as we go through. And finally, it's the structure of this book. It's a fascinating structure. You can divide this uh, book into two sections with verses, chapter 1, uh, verses One and two, when the Lord calls Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh, and then in chapter three, verse one, the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise and go to Nineveh. So that divides the book, but actually I'm going to get a little fancier, and by fancy I mean textbook definition of elaborate in structure, and break this down into seven scenes, like it's a movie, asking How do we see the sovereign mercy of God throughout this story? And when I say mercy, if this is helpful, think of mercy as not getting what you deserve and think of grace as getting what you don't deserve, if that's helpful. Mercy, not getting what you deserve. 
Okay, so we come to scene one. This is verses one, or chapter one, verses one through three. And my title for this is, No Thanks, I'm Out of Here. So verse one, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, uh, verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to go to Tarshish, or to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So right here, it's, hmm, one of these prophets is not like the others. So far with the minor prophets, God calls them to himself, calls them to go either to his people, Israel or Judah, or some of the surrounding nations, and they were to bring the word of the Lord. But they were to be God's mouthpiece. But look at Jonah. God calls him, but Jonah literally goes and does the opposite. He is to go to Nineveh. So if I'm a map, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh's over here. Jonah gets on a boat and goes that way, the exact opposite, in the direction of Tarshish. And that uh, to Tarshish, that phrase, is repeated three times. The author is making the point like, oh no, do you see what Jonah is doing? What he's up to? Because at this point, Jonah is following his own sinful heart rather than following the voice of the Lord. And this is going to create drama for the rest of the book. So why did Jonah disobey God? Well, he reveals later on, and this is in chapter 4, verse 2, when he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. And this is it, of why Jonah disobeyed. He says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. In other words, Jonah did not want God to show mercy to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, one of the bitter enemies of Israel. And Jonah wants no part of their repentance towards God. And here's where we begin to see the big difference between God's heart and Jonah's heart. God's plan and Jonah's plan. See, Jonah is okay with God having compassion and mercy on God's own people, the Israelites. In fact, Jonah was a prophet called by God in 2 Kings chapter 14 to go uh, to be the voice of the Lord speaking about prosperity of Israel. And Jonah went. 2 Kings 14, he was happy to go then. But now God's telling him to go call Nineveh to repent. And Jonah wants no part of that plan. But it has always been God's heart and plan to extend mercy to the nations. Just, I'll give a few examples uh, quickly throughout the scriptures. We see in Genesis chapter 12, right? This is the call of Abraham. So remember, we have the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, when Everybody essentially is rebelling against God. The very next chapter, chapter 12, God focuses attention down on one man to Abram, later named Abraham, and says, through you, I will establish descendants and you will grow to be a great nation. And through you, through, I will bless all the nations of the earth. That was the call on Abraham, that they would be a blessing to the nations. Moses in Deuteronomy 4, tells the Israelites to walk in obedience to the Lord so that the nations will see what a great God I am. We find in Isaiah 49.6, the Lord declares, I'll make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That includes Nineveh. Ezekiel 18.23, the Lord declares, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Psalm 96, declare his glory among the nations, 
his marvelous works among all the peoples. That includes Nineveh. And then finally, Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Did you notice Jonah quoted that? Because he's quoting Exodus 34, where God had revealed himself in that way. But what Jonah neglected was the second part of that psalm. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has created. God shows himself his heart to be compassionate, merciful. Jonah wants no part of that. God's heart is to extend mercy to the nations, for people to turn and repent. And we see this in Luke chapter 15, verse 10. Scriptures tell us that angels rejoice when one sinner repents. Right, But we see Jonah's heart is revealed when he fled to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Twice in this section, away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah's life is an illustration of what happens if we move further and further away from God's voice and God's presence. And I'll tell you, it is not pretty as we look at Jonah's life. This takes us to scene two. What is God's response? God brings a storm to redirect Jonah. So scene two, uh, this is the boat scene. I've actually entitled it, uh, It's a Hurl Fest, because what drives this are three key words, hurled, fear, and down. So let me just take up those three words. It is a hurl fest in the sense that hurled shows up four times in this section. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind. And then in verse 5, so the sailors hurled cargo into the sea to keep the boat afloat. Then in verse 12, Jonah says, hey, my fault, my bad. I'm fleeing from God's presence. Hurl me in and the sea will calm down. And then verse 15, and eventually they hurl him in. The next key word, fear. Now notice the progression of fear throughout this section as well. In verse 5, the sailors are afraid and they call out to their gods, who do not help them, by the way. Then we have in verse 9, Jonah tells the sailors that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. But it's clear from Jonah's life, he is not living in fear, meaning awe, worship, obedience to the Lord. But he says he fears God. And then we have in verse 10, the sailors, when they find out what Jonah, why why the storm is coming on them, verse 10, they, they are exceedingly afraid and say, what have you done? Then after they hurl Jonah into the sea, verse 16 It says the men feared the Lord exceedingly. But this time that feared is is worship. And here's what we cannot miss from this section. It's the compassionate heart of God. So first, as we think about what, what just played out here, Jonah's running because he has no compassion on the Ninevites. But now these sailors come into play, and these are pagan sailors, pagan in the sense of, They worship idols. They worship false gods. They have more compassion than Jonah does. Jonah says, hurl me into the sea in verse 13. They say, "Uh, not yet, essentially. They try to paddle harder. They're showing compassion on Jonah. But then the biggest, the greatest compassion is that of the Lord's. That these pagan sailors at first were exceedingly afraid and called out to their gods So the story could have ended with God just, you know, playing battleship with them and sinking the whole ship, but he doesn't. Instead, brings them to the end where they fear him exceedingly, meaning they worship him. God uses the circumstance in his sovereign mercy to draw these sailors to himself. And that is the truth of God, right? God's sovereign mercy using whatever it takes to draw people to himself. 
Now, let's focus on the word down. The word down is used five times in chapters 1 and 2. And there's a progression here as well. In in verse 3, Jonah went down to Joppa and down into the ship. And then in verse 5, as a response to the storm, rather than repent, Jonah went down into the inner part of the ship and laid down to sleep. Not praying, by the way, for himself, for the people, but he just lays down to sleep. And then later in chapter 2, Jonah will go down into the belly of the fish. And this is no coincidence that the word down is being used and that there is a progression. What we see in Jonah's life is he is moving lower and lower towards death, away from the presence of the Lord. But what does God do? Out of compassion, he sends the storm to redirect Jonah and essentially to rescue Jonah. Sometimes God's compassion comes through things that don't necessarily make sense to us, right? The storms of life. But I do like how uh, there's one commentator, James Montgomery Boyce, great commentaries on the minor prophets. He wrote this about this storm, and he was referring to the incidents, uh, incident when the disciples are in the boat with Jesus. The storm comes up, the disciples cry out, and Jesus calms the storm. And here's what Boyce writes. He says, the Lord who can calm the troubled waters of your life is the same Lord who can stir them up to a great frenzy. What he does depends on whether he is with you in the boat, or a better way of putting it, whether or not you are with him. If Jesus is in your boat, if you are going his way and trusting him, then when the storms come, you can cry out, Master, help me, and he will calm the violence. But if you're running from him, if he is not in your boat, and you are disobeying him, then he will stir the waves up. And have you noticed this in your life at times? I have noticed it in my life, the waves being stirred up. And how often Tiffany and I will look at each other and say, oh, we, we need to pray. We need to pray more. We need to pray harder. That's the reality at times of what God is doing Stirring up life to remind us we are not in control and we have to depend on the Lord for all things. So in God's compassion and his mercy, he allows those storms in our lives. As we come to the end of chapter uh, 1, consider, uh, consider the compassion of God in this way. After Jonah was hurled into the sea, Verse 17 could say, and Jonah got eaten by Jaws, the end. Right? Like, what a great bedtime story. Sweet dreams, kids. That's not what verse 17 says. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a fish. Let me pause. Right now, the question is often asked, okay, could that have really happened? Is this actually a true story? So let me just answer that question with a question. Um, Where does a 900-pound gorilla sit? Anywhere it wants. God's the 900-pound gorilla here. If he sees fit, then he does. Virgin birth, I believe it. God can make that happen. Resurrection from the dead, I believe it. God can make that happen. Jonah in the belly of a fish, I believe it. God can make that happen. Okay? All right, let's go on. By the way, Jesus affirmed this story as well when he referred to, in the same way Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, that he would, I said whale, fish, doesn't actually say, I just assume it's whale. But in the same way he's three days in the belly of a fish, that Jesus will be three days in the grave. So Jesus referred to this as truth. And incidentally, by the way, research bears out that it's actually possible to survive in a fish. That would be horrible, but for what it's worth, scene three, 
Scene three, we move from the boat to the belly, to the belly of the fish. And I title this Jonah's Self-Centered Prayer of Thanks. You'll see what I mean about self-centered in a minute. Jonah, um, Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish. Now, we have to understand, so this seems like a really bad day, right, if you're Jonah. You begin your day by disobeying the Lord and you run from him, and then he causes this huge storm um, to the point where people chuck you over into the water, and then you get swallowed by a fish. Like, that's horrible. Right? That seems like a bad day, but when Jonah writes chapter 2, or this chapter 2 for us, is his, uh, his prayer recorded. Uh, this is a prayer of thanksgiving to God, because we see that God is actually rescuing him in this way. And what's interesting about this, uh, this prayer is that much of this prayer is based on the Psalms. It's actually a great model for us to model our prayers after Scripture. So I'm going to just roll through chapter 2, making references to the other Psalms that Joel uses here. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Psalm 18. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and that Sheol is the realm of the dead. Again, Jonah is sinking more and more towards death, towards destruction, as his heart is further and further away from God. Okay, so out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep. Did you catch that? Who actually cast Jonah into the water? Well, was it the sailors? Yes. But he says, you, meaning the Lord, he understands, he sees God's sovereign hand over this. Into the heart of the sea, and, you, uh, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me, Psalm 42. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, Psalm 139. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple, Psalm 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, Psalm 69. Weeds were wrapped around my head, or uh, wrapped about my head. And the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land. That's went down, that's that fifth time that that phrase is used. Went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, Psalm 30. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, Psalm 142, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple, Psalm 18. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Okay, get ready. Steadfast love. When you see the word steadfast love in the Old Testament, you should think covenant, because that's referring to God's covenant love. And when you hear the word covenant, you should think covenant formula, which is, I will be God. You, I will be your God. You shall be my people. Hey, so when you see steadfast love in the Old Testament, you should think covenant. And when you think covenant, you should think covenant formula, which is, I will be your God and you shall be my people. That's God's promise, right? I want us to get that. That's so important because our whole life is centered on God's covenant faithfulness. He calls his people to himself, promises he will be faithful, proved it all the way to the cross, calls us to be faithful as well. And then verse 9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay, Psalm 3, when he says, salvation belongs to the Lord, which by the way, salvation belongs to the Lord is basically a summary statement of the Bible. Jonah's acknowledging that, and he knows that's true for him and God's people, but his heart is not fully in it yet. If you notice in this prayer, he did not pray for the sailors, and he did not confess his sin, right? His heart's not fully there yet with God's heart. And then we see chapter 2 ends with God's sovereign mercy. God speaks to the fish, and the fish vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Scene 4. 
This is verses 3, 1 through 3. I call this scene, here we go again. Because, verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh. And this time, Jonah obeys. Now, I just want to make a brief note on the Hebrew in this, because this could be perplexing. It is to many. The Hebrew in chapter, in, in chapter 3, verse 3, is hard to understand. The question is, when it says that Nineveh is an exceedingly great city, does that mean in size or in importance to God? People differ. And then the three days journey, the question is, does that mean it took three days for Jonah to walk there? Or does that mean it took three days to walk through it? And that's the case if you count not just the city of Nineveh, but the surroundings, surrounding parts, which means Jonah would have been going to the city folk as well as the Nineveh country folk. Okay, so I want to say there, regardless of all that, I imagine Jonah preferred the option of going back to Nineveh than bringing another natural disaster upon his life if he doesn't go, but his heart is still not in it. Scene five. See how quick scene four was, in case you're getting nervous about time? All right, some of these are quick. Scene five, verses three, or chapter three, verses four through 10, revival in Nineveh is my caption. Jonah, the reluctant prophet, uh, essentially gives um, eight words in our English Bibles. It's five words in Hebrew, and it's this. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah is preaching fire and brimstone. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. So, in Hebrew, the very first word of that sentence is believed. It's as if the author is making the statement, believed was their response, and they repented. And then we see in verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And I love this because I love the verse 2 Thessalonians 3.1 where Paul says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. And this is a great example in the Old Testament of the word of the Lord speeding throughout Nineveh. It comes to the king. He repents. It says he covers him. He removes his throne. Actually, let me start here. He arose from his throne and then he removes, his, uh, he removes his robe, covers himself with sackcloth, satin ashes. All of that is a demonstration of repentance. What's fascinating is the word arose is used throughout. God called Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah rose, fled the other way. Now we have a contrast with this king who arises from his throne to humble himself before God, another contrast with Jonah's heart. The king says in verse 9, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then verse 10, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. All right, so here's the question. Was God surprised by this and change his, And did he change his mind? Did he not see the future on this one? And this is the conversation that I mentioned weeks ago when I was introing the topic of the prophets on the word is conditionality. Conditionality, but let me explain it with the story. Uh, when my kids were young, I came up with this game that I called uh, Beanbag Bible Trivia. Here's how the game works. So I would put this huge beanbag that we had uh, in our room, and then I would step back from it. I'd be on my knees, and I'd line my kids up, and I'd ask them Bible questions. And when they would answer a question, I would say, you may pass by. If they got the question wrong, I would crush them into the beanbag. If they got the question right, they would pass by. My kids knew that judgment was coming if they didn't get it right. I still remember my daughter, Paige. She would answer the question and then just try to sneak by, and I would crush her, right? So 
this is the reality of conditionality. If you get it right, God relents. That's built in. That is part of his sovereign plan. So when the prophets call out that judgment is coming, that means it is unless you repent. I like how Nancy Guthrie in her book on the prophets, uh, the word of the Lord, um, she says it this way, God relented because Nineveh repented. It's a great way to think of it. God relented because blank repented. You could fill in the blank with uh, many times throughout the scriptures. God always responds with mercy to people who repent and believe those who cry out to him for mercy, she writes. And we see this built in. In fact, if I could just briefly read from Jeremiah chapter 18, we see God's sovereign plan of building in repentance into his plan. If I could read this, uh, starting verse 7. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intend to do to it. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I have intended to do to it. So we see in God's sovereign plan, he's built in human response in that way. And again, we see God's mercy here. This is the greatest revival in history. The end, right? And no, we're on to scene six and the next chapter, chapter four. Now the question is with 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 the revival that takes place in Nineveh, is Jonah, is Jonah glad? No, Jonah mad. We see this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. But it di- displeased Jonah greatly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to him, Do you do well to be angry? So, this I titled uh, this section, verses 1 through 4, is Jonah's self-centered, irreverent prayer of no thanks and see, I told you so. Because that's essentially Jonah's heart still. It, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, there's an interesting play on the word evil. One of the repeated words throughout Jonah is the word evil. But it can take on different, uh, there's different expressions of it. At times, it's literally evil. But here, the root word of evil, e- evil is, uh, is displeased. So you could say that Jonah is characterized by displeasure, or you could say he's characterized by evil right now because his heart is not in line with God's heart. And Jonah knows God's heart because he's already quoted, and he quotes here from Exodus 34 when he says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding steadfast love, relenting from disaster. So God's heart, here's the reality. He knew God's heart, but for us, if we want to see God's heart, we look clearly at Jesus and we see God's heart. We see it throughout the Gospels. Let me just do a quick contrast between Jonah and Jesus. There's a lot of things you could say, but these two points. Jonah was called to Nineveh, but ran in the other direction. And think about Jesus. In heaven, perfect communion with God, adored by the angels. God the Father calls him to go to us, to suffering, to torture, to persecution, to a gruesome crucifixion. And Jesus willingly went. 
for us. Jonah went to Nineveh with no compassion. He was bitter. When Jesus went to Jerusalem, he looked out over the people and he wept. He wept over them, over their hard hearts. See, Jonah is a warning to us of the danger of a cold-hearted, us-versus-them mentality. And here's what I mean. If I can be just uh, pretty direct about this. The danger of an us-versus-them mentality, it goes something like this. We Christians have God in our life, and our life reflects it, and our lifestyle reflects it. You, non-Christian, you don't, and your life is disgusting to me. Oftentimes, that's within our hearts, with no compassion. What's the truth of the matter for us? We forget the gospel. that We are sinners, just like them, but saved by grace. If left to ourselves, apart from the grace of the God, we are no different that the they that we have in our mind, they are actually not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And the us versus them mentality really has no place in our lives and it has no place in this church. We are called to be different, absolutely. But we're also called to have compassion and love our neighbor. And maybe it's a simple prayer. Lord, help me to grow in compassion and to love my neighbor, right? Scene seven, our final scene. And I titled this one, this is verses, uh, chapter four, verses five through 11. I titled it God's Sovereign Mercy because I just want to emphasize God's sovereign mercy. I'm just going to read through this one, making some comments along the way. Jonah went out, verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. So Jonah's hoping for a Sodom and Gomorrah moment. He wants God to rain down fire. That's what he wants. Now, verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. That word discomfort is the root of evil, the root word of evil in Hebrew. So in other words, God created this plant to save Jonah from his evil. In other words, Jonah, you're experiencing my compassion. Can you not then turn around and show compassion? So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Notice in the beginning, Jonah was exceedingly angry that Ninevites came to, came to faith in Yahweh, right? But now Jonah is exceedingly glad, not because they came to faith, but because he's comfortable. And then verse 7 But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So in Jonah, four times the word appoint. This is God's sovereign mercy. God appointed a fish that rescued Jonah. God appointed a plant that shaded him. No, those Jonah would have thought were good gifts. But the gifts that God gives to Jonah continues. He appointed a worm to kill the plant, and he appointed a wind, a scorching wind. What Jonah, what God is doing in his sovereign mercy is he's not allowing Jonah to stay comfortable. He's making a comparison of Jonah you're exceedingly glad that this plant is giving you comfort. But what about, what about the people that were destined for destruction and they repented? Can you not be glad there? Can you not share my heart? Essentially is what's going on. And what God essentially is doing with Jonah is he is rescuing him from a vine-centered life. I like how a commentator put it that way. 
a vine-centered life, a life of comfort. Instead, what God is saying is, no, Jonah, you can't just love the gift more than the giver. And you can't just love your comforts in life. There's work to do. We call that evangelism, right? More than, more than our comforts. Then verse 9. Verse 9, we're going to see some questions. Um, now, when God asks questions in the Bible, it's usually, no, it's always that he's not, let me start over. When God asks questions, it's never because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he's getting to the heart of it. So look at these questions. First, he asked in uh, chapter 4, verse 4, do you do well to be angry? And then again, he asked this in verse 10, um, or actually in verse 9, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And then look at verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, you pitied the plant which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being at night, perished in the night, and should I not pity, uh, pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Here's the point with the questions. Jonah, are you pitying the wrong thing here? Do you not pity what's on my heart? The need for people to come to, to know the one true God. And then he talks about those who don't know their right hand from their left, meaning those who are ignorant about the one true God. And then he mentions cattle at the end. There's been some different understandings of that, but most likely the reference is, Jonah, if you pity this plant over people, well, there's all these people and cattle. Do you pity the cattle as well? What this brings us to Again, I mentioned in the beginning, this functions like a parable. It's to catch us off guard at the end and ask the question, we are Jonah. If you have received the grace of God, do you care about those who face judgment? So I want to end with this thought. In the very beginning, I asked the question, the overarching questions, um, what's at the heart of this book? The heart of this book is God's sovereign mercy. I asked, why did God see fit to give us this book? Because we need to be reminded of the compassion and mercy of God. And what do we learn about Jonah that's incredibly important for us? I'll put it this way. It's good news, bad news, and good news. Here's the good news. It's hard to do worse than Jonah, right? Gets a call in his life, runs the opposite direction, then is bitter the whole time, and he basically, his evangelistic message is 40 days in your toast. And God used Jonah and all his failings to bring repentance to people. And yes, we are often exceedingly afraid, if I can use the term from Jonah, to share the gospel. God used Jonah and all his failings. And God can use us. Here's the bad news. We are Jonah. Often God says, arise and go, and we get up and we go. We go to work, we go to school, we go to our neighborhoods, we go to various activities that we're involved in, but so often we go with a vine-centered life. It's all about just we're consumed with our own creature comforts and ourselves. We go so often self-centered, not thinking about eternal realities around us. That's the bad news, right? But there's good news. We see this with Jonah in chapter 3. God says, go again. In our lives, we see God first as a compassionate, merciful God that calls us to go again. Go back to work. Go back to your schools. Go back to your neighborhoods. Go back to your activities. But recognize that God is a powerful God. What we have is the very spirit of God in our lives. He has given us the gospel, the most powerful message that can break down any hearts. And we have the truth of the matter that God goes before us as well. I love if we could just use this. Um, Matthew 28, 7 
where it's proclaimed, he has risen, he is going before you. That's the truth of our lives all the time. God goes before us, is able to use us. We have 2 Peter 3, the good news, that God's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief is how that goes on. And so for us, the question, what do we do with this message? I think we pray. We pray for our own hearts, for compassion. We pray for others' hearts, that God would be at work. And we go. We go. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I do pray that we would reflect your compassion to the world. I pray that according to your scriptures, the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored. Pray that as a church and as, as individuals within this church, that you would open up doors for us to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. I pray that through our church, people would come to know Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, that you would bring new believers into our midst, that the gospel would go out powerfully from our church. I pray that we would be salt and light as you call us to go back to work and to school and to neighborhoods, activities, wherever it is, that we would reflect your compassionate heart and live as light in the world. And Lord, you know the needs of our congregation, and the prayers that have come before us, I do pray, speaking of being light, Lord, for those in our church, in the medical community especially, but even broader, that you'd be with them, uh, healthcare workers, strengthen them, that they would stay, stay healthy for uh, relief for the hospitals that are taking in so many patients, but, but Lord, especially for the Christians in the field, that they'd shine as light. Pray for Monica Duncan. She continues to deal with the effects of COVID and will undergo tests this week. I pray that you would uh, bring solution uh, that can be found with and bring her back to health uh, is our prayer. And we do pray for the Evans family for, as Christina's father uh, passed away on January 5th. Lord, um, thankfully the, the Lord or, or the family gives thanks to you, Lord, that um, faithfulness to Jesus, but also uh, at the same time, the grief over the loss of, of her father. So I do pray that you would embrace them. And, and Lord, you know the other concerns that aren't named in our prayer emails but are heavy on people's hearts. Thanks that you are a God that is with us and might is save. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.